0: It often strikes me that the Church of the Incarnation can look quite strange, uh, quite confusing to people. Uh, I, I didn't realize this when I was young, and I grew up in the Bible Belt down in Louisiana and in Texas as a Baptist and everybody I knew did what we're doing right now. But over the last several years, uh, over and over, I seem to have these moments where I realize that what we're doing is quite odd. Sunday after Sunday, giving up so many opportunities to do this odd ritual. Gather in this room, sing, sing, Confess our sins, listen to a teaching from scripture, come to the table and have communion. That week after week after week, here we are, prime time, hour and 45 minutes, two hours. And then we follow this up by leisurely, visiting with each other, coffee and bagels for another 30 minutes or an hour or some longer. I've taken the church seriously my whole life. Like I said, I grew up in Louisiana and Texas as um, the son of a Baptist pastor who was the son of a Baptist pastor, my uncle, my brother. It's the family business. And um, when I was a child growing up in the Baptist church, our church gathered on Sunday morning, on Sunday nights, on Tuesday nights, on Wednesday nights, and I was there, my family. That's, that's what we did. Now, we do things a little different, but not that much different. We get together a lot. Here we are, a lot, almost all of us, most of us get together during the week in small groups and homes. Week after week, we do this. This thing on Sunday morning, it cuts our vacation short. It keeps us from camping all weekend long with our friends. It keeps us out of sports that happen on Sunday morning. It keeps us from sleeping in. And the list goes on and on and on. This, this moment is the last remaining moment that so few people lay claim to. It's this free moment. And here, we do this week after week. I see you here. We give up. In this frenetic, frenzied, over-busy culture, we give up this morning. Sometimes I think what this must look like to people who are not accustomed to it. Sometimes I think, why do we do this? And then I hear passages like Acts chapter 20 and 21, and I remember why. Why? And I remember why Janelle and I lead our children to bend their whole lives around this and to live out of step with their friends and to structure the rhythm of vacations and hobbies differently. Look with me at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. First of all, look right in the middle. The church of God, the church, this thing we are, this thing we're doing, it belongs to God the Father. And then look what it says right after that. He obtained it with his own blood. The price God paid to create the church was really high. It was the death of his beloved son. And third, look at the beginning of verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the pastors of the churches. There is one creator. He is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And do you see how important the church is to him? He's all in. He created the church through the sacrificial death of his son, and he cares for the church through the Holy Spirit calling and appointing leaders to oversee the church. The church belongs to the triune God. He's all in. The church is God's baby, it's his gift to the world. God has put all of his eggs in the basket of the church. The church is the single greatest gift of the one creator to the world that he loves because the church is the way God has given himself to the world for the life of the world. And this morning, for those of you who've been doing this a long time like me, I want to just remind you of why we're doing it. For those of you who are looking at this because you pop in on special days and with friends and when you have margin left over in your schedule, I I want to say to you why some of us treat this differently. To all of us, I want to encourage you to commit yourself to the creator through the church in three costly, sacrificial, and generous ways. First of all, and definitely most important of the three things I'm going to talk about, it is appropriate to make a radical and costly and generous commitment to worship with the church. Worship with the church. Sunday morning, corporate. Ritualized worship is the most important thing that you do in your entire life, and it is the most important thing that the church does in its entire life. It is the central act of your life. It is a central act of the church's life. Think about those 10 strange verses in Acts chapter 20. I'm talking about this episode where Eutychus falls out the window. Look, look at Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread and be taught the Scriptures. There it is. Worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day. The Jews, they count time from sunset to sunset. So Sunday is from sunset on Saturday night to sunset on Sunday night. So the beginning of Sunday is Sunday night. The beginning of Monday is Sunday night. The beginning of Sunday is Saturday night. They've been working all day. All day on Saturday, they've been working. That was an ordinary working day in the Roman Empire. So the church had to meet very late at night after work or very early in the morning before work because they lived In a culture that didn't rhythm its week the way Christians do. They didn't live in a nation that was founded on this rhythm. And therefore, generally speaking, most people have Sunday off from work. No, they had jobs and they had to go to them. And then they show up late in the day... After a full day of labor, the service probably began at sunset. It's in the upstairs of a house. And like it says in verse 8, they need light. It's dark. And so the room is full of oil lamps. It's stuffy. It's oily. And here's Eutychus. And based on the Greek word to describe him, young man, he's likely between eight years old and 14 years old. And he's been working and he's tired and he's fighting off sleep. None of you have ever experienced this in church where you're just fighting. You know that church nod where you feel like your head drops like 18 feet. That's poor little Eutychus. He's fighting against it. He's fighting against it. And poor dude, he's leaning up next to the windowsill, right? It's oily. It's stuffy. It's dark. And the worship service involves scripture teaching and Eucharist. And Paul is giving the teaching. And it appears the first part of his teaching goes from sunset to midnight. And the second part from right after Eucharist until sunrise. And it appears this is teaching based on the words used for teaching here. It appears it's it's not just a monologue. It's teaching with discussion. He's teaching the scriptures. They're hanging around, talking about the scriptures. So many of you, more than I can count, have come to Essentials in our house and then stayed with us late into the night talking about the scriptures. This is what they're doing. Have you ever noticed when you go to explain something really important to somebody how the simplest thing can feel like it takes a very long time to explain? CJ, have you ever been sitting with students and trying to get something? And it, do, it can't be done quick. Very often, very important things take And here is Paul teaching the scriptures patiently. My point is, in this story, and in the stuff Paul says later in the rest of the chapter to the folks in Ephesus, we see radical, costly, and generous gifts of time by the people of God to gather together on the Lord's Day to worship God. Why? Why is the worship of the church? And I'm not talking about a daily time of worship, the way that you can worship on the golf course. Absolutely you can. You can have worshipful experiences with God while you're fishing or hunting or hiking or doing whatever brings deep pleasure to you. That's a worshipful thing. I'm not talking about that. The Bible talks about that. That's good. I'm not discounting that. I'm talking about this thing we're doing now. Sunday morning corporate, ritualized, whether your ritual is the Pentecostal ritual or the Catholic ritual or the Lutheran one or the Anglican or the Baptist or the non-denominational, you've all got rituals. You all could set your clock by the, by the paces of the worship service. Why Why is this so important that we see it right here. By the way. This is the earliest description of the church's radical commitment. To worship on the Lord's Day on Sunday. This is the very first time it occurs in the history of the world. Why? Why so important that it happens here. And it carries on for century and millennia. And we get to moments in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century. Where the Roman Empire demands Christians to stop. And their response is this day belongs to the Lord. That's what Lord's Day, Lord possessed means? It means it belongs to God and we will die and they did. They were burned at the stake because they refused to stop doing this. Why? Why has that happened? And why does my family and so many of your families cut vacations short? Why do we change our habits? Why do we give up hobbies that are great but take us out of this so we make the cost-benefit analysis? Why do we do such a weird, crazy thing? Because over and over and over, we learn in the scriptures that this is the central act of being a human. Not worship in a vague, generic, emotional, personal, private sense, but corporate worship on the Lord's day by the Lord's people. And there are so many reasons that scripture lays out for this. To begin with, the church at worship on the Lord's Day is the fundamental way you are transformed into the image of God into being truly human, into being truly yourself, into being agents of the gospel. And also because the church at worship on the Lord's Day is the primary way the gospel is declared. And furthermore, the heart of Christianity is the gospel and the church at worship on the Lord's Day is the primary way we respond to the gospel. And then there's this when we gather for worship. This is the most thorough way in which we are brought into intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. And one more thing, the rhythmic alternation of work and worship, labor and liturgy is one of the most significant distinguishing features of a Christian's way of being in the world. We could go on and on, but the point is that the weekly gathering of the church on Sunday around Scripture and Eucharist is one of the concrete ways we practice valuing this thing that the Father owns and the Son paid for with His blood and the Spirit cares for by the giving out of His gifts. The value of the church to God should inspire us to be faithful to God through the church, and this flesh is out over and over in the Bible, not the least of which in this chapter, the way we are faithful to God, the number one way, is by valuing what he so clearly and dearly values, the church. And we do this first and foremost by gathering with the church on the Lord's day to worship, even when we're tired and the service is long. And I won't tell you who at Essentials this past week, Fell over in their chair. She'll probably laugh any minute now. Um, Because she slipped toward the end of it. You know when your head's like this. It was funny. Everybody there knows. We're not laughing at you my friend. Second. I want to encourage you. Strongly encourage you. To commit yourself. Not only to worship with the church but to friendship in the church. So first, commit yourself to worship with the church. And second, commit yourself to friendship in the church. Did you notice when Michelle was reading these two chapters to us, did you notice that Luke, the author, he was, when he's describing the journey that Paul is on, right at the beginning of chapter 20, he interrupts the sequence of travel events to name all these companions. Michelle noticed because she had to practice reading the names. These companions of Paul and where they're from and what their cities are. And we know from other places in the New Testament that Paul hardly ever traveled alone. And when he did, when he was alone, he would write letters begging friends to come to him. And then there's this remarkable scene in Acts chapter 20, verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all they embraced, and they kissed, and they were sorrowful because they wouldn't see him again. Clearly, Paul and this group of friends, clearly they loved each other deeply. At the end of a long day of work, they'd stay up all night to catch up and to worship God. And go back to work the next day. They would weep and hug and kiss and grieve when they knew they wouldn't see each other again. Not to mention that back in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. A day and a half journey to go get him. A day and a half journey for them to arrive. Three days. This is a huge high price to pay. All of this is revealing to us. This is all this price that they're paying. This is a manifestation of their friendship. And this not only shows up in the traveling companions, but if we went through chapter 1, all the houses they stayed in, seven days here with this man and one day here with this couple. This isn't easy. We've read enough of Acts to know that friendship's not easy. These are people who have gotten very mad at each other, who have hurt each other. I mean, we see them arguing about what the Spirit is telling Paul to do. None of us are perfect. None of us are everything we need to be easy at friends. There's a lot of us that are obstinate and needy and difficult, so how do we do it? How are we going to not just name this thing as some kind of placard motto, but actually put it to work in the concrete reality of our life? How are we going to live together as the Church of the Incarnation? How are we going to pull this off, not just for the honeymoon season, but for the whole thing? Because some of you really get on my nerves. And I get on your nerves. If we haven't gotten on each other's nerves yet, there's only one reason. It's not compatibility, it's that we just haven't spent enough time together. That's the only reason there's somebody in this room you haven't gotten, you haven't been bothered by because I promise you, the alternative is that both of you are perfect. How are we going to do this? How are we going to overcome the real barriers to real friendship with real people when you're locked in together? How do we forgive? How do we push through the conflicts? Lots of things, but one really important thing is that we've got to learn to regard one another. Every person that Jesus sends to us, we must learn to regard one another as a gift from Jesus. That's what Ephesians 4 says. I have to look at Mike as God's gift to me. Janelle and I worked on the budget yesterday. Not easy. Wasn't all smiley, happy clappy. One of us forgets to record what we did with receipts. I won't say her name. The other one of us doesn't respond with grace. I won't say his name. Janelle's got a good friend who she was texting with who was working on her budget, comes over to pick up our children from just over here on College Shuttle, where she lives. And when she gets there, she's in a foul mood because she's been working on her budget. How how do we endure such things together? How do we live this life together? We always remember. Every person in this church is a gift from God. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put this. And the greatest sermon preached in the 20th century, it's called The Weight of Glory. It's also the title to a group of essays. But in that is this particular sermon. Last paragraph, best paragraph of any sermon preached in the 20th century, I believe. Here's what he says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Talking about what a human is. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would either be strongly tempted to worship or else run in horror, a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat is to ours. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are perpetually solemn. No, we must play. But our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and a costly charity with deep feeling for the sins In spite of which we love the sinner. No more tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object your senses will ever experience. If we can hold this. If we can resolve that Jesus sins no slop our way. Only VIPs. That's what James said in chapter 2. We need to make fresh commitment to the church by worshiping with the church and by cultivating spiritual friendships within the church. And finally, the extreme value of the church to God in Acts chapters 20 and 21 inspires us not only by its account of worship, Not only by its account of spiritual friendship within the church, but also it inspires us to commit ourselves to mission through the church. Worship with the church, friendship in the church, mission through the church. I don't always give you handy outlines. This is a gift for those of you who need this. Notice in Acts chapter 21, notice how the people, the actual people on the ground make their value of God's church obvious by the way They are committed to mission through the church. And this shows up in two very practical ways. Number one, the way they generously release their leaders, their best leaders. Look at chapter 20, verse 4. That long list of people leaving their home churches to go. In a day without Facebook, without telephones... They just give them up. And we saw this earlier, didn't we, in chapter 13, where Paul was actually a regular old member of a regular old church. And then God said, let him go. And here we see these people. Paul has spent three years with the Ephesians, three years in that church. And in this moment, he says, I've got to go. And they know they will never see, uh, isn't it so tender, never see his face again. So generous. We've had to do this as a church. We had to say goodbye to the Napotniks and the Hansons and the Lepervats and so many more, the Hays that planted a church and church in Elkton. Some of you don't know this, but last week John and Nancy Hay were here. Those of us who missed them with all of our guts. It was a bittersweet reunion knowing that they're here, but they're going to continue to live in sin by going to Church of the Lamb instead of here? No. And we have to keep doing this. We have to. We have to love each other deeply and hold each other loosely. And that is so hard. We have to plant churches in Harrisonburg. We're not going to build a bigger building. That is not in the cards for us as far as I can see. We're not going to add a second service. That is not in the cards for us as far as the leadership of our church can see. This is it. And there needs to be more of this in Harrisonburg than can fit in this room. And we've committed from the beginning to be a small, healthy church. This is the size we've committed ourselves to that plants other small, healthy churches. We're going to keep planning in Harrisonburg until there's room for 1,000 or 2,000 people to worship in a church that takes hospitality like this and, and, and friendship like this and is committed to the whole scriptures and the whole gospel and the whole culture in sophisticated ways. We're going to keep doing this. And that's going to I'm, there's going to be a day when there are people in this room and we will no longer be worshiping together. We're going to have to let each other go. Because... The local church in a local neighborhood is where God has put all the eggs in his basket. That is how God labors for the shalom of a community. We've got, this is a costly thing. This is painful. I don't know where we're going to plant next. I think we need to plant within the next year and a half. I don't know where. I do not. But we've got to. For the sake of this city and because we love and value and know that God is doing this thing on the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Another way they so generously gave to the work of mission through the church, not only by giving up one another, they also so generously gave their money. Back in chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but a prophet named Agabus told that there was going to be a great famine, And so somewhere after chapter 11 and verse 12, Paul starts going and visiting all the churches. In fact, it seems from a, from a number of the letters that a primary driving force of his second and third missionary journeys was to collect money from churches to help out the church in Jerusalem. Money above and beyond their tithes. As Christians, the Bible commands us to give 10% of our money to God through the church it's, it's a command it's, it's not an option and so a lot of us do that and it's weird you know when I look at what my family gives it, we would be renovating our house a lot faster we would be going on more vacations we would eat out more it's weird I don't know anybody who does that but Christians I, now there are people who give But there's a lot of people in this room who they just straight up give 10%. And so by the time you take off taxes and 10%, it's a strange way to live. But then they not only did that, they gave beyond that. It's called a free will offering. And that's the way we help each other out. This is how they did the work of mission. So I encourage you in this third basic way. That we commit ourselves to this thing God loves so much, to this thing He created through the sacrificial death of His Son, and He cares for through the gifts of His Spirit. This thing, the church, this thing that the one and only Creator of our world has given for the life of the world, that you would commit yourself to God's mission by loving each other deeply, but holding each other loosely. And giving away more of your money than you do now. All of these are cost you. Obviously, the money one, it's quite obvious. Those of us who have bills and for whom um, we don't have large money margin in our budgets, it's obvious. But there's one last way it's going to cost us. I just want to foreground it because it's there. It's going to cost your time. This stuff costs time. Investing in friendships in the church, investing in Sunday morning worship, investing in the mission of the church—it's going to cost us the second most precious commodity in our lives, right? Right after our money, our time. This thing we don't have enough of. This thing that our culture—we have overly given away our time to pleasures. We're not living in the kind of culture. It's—it's it's happened plenty of times in the history of the world where people's time is precious because they have to labor so many hours of their lives. Now, for most of you, that is not the case. Your life does not depend on 20 hours of labor a day. But for most of us, we've bought into a toxic culture of pleasure that has committed all of the margin of our lives to hobbies, and to friends who live out of town. And to all manner of things. That fills up our schedule. If you. you know, I was reading a, an article by a financial advisor yesterday. Called, <laughs> of the obvious. And this guy was talking about. People who try to save after all the money has been spent. tend not to save. And people who offer Sunday morning worship when the weekends are available, tend not to go very often. It's the same. We have to put our tithe up front. We have to put our time commitments up front. And so what this means is that for some of you to love the church in a way that honors how much God loves the church, you need to spend the next several weeks budgeting your time, figuring out. Just because it's good, is it worth it? Look, and today, in, in, and this is, this was not a setup for um, the thing in your worship guide on the annual celebration, although it's quite convenient that it did last. I mean, I didn't know when we planned out the series that this passage would fall on the day we first presented that to you. But look, over the next four weeks, we're asking everybody in our church. Some of you don't know this, but our church's roles go to zero every year. All of our volunteer positions finish up every year. All of our commitments of giving or wiped clean every year. Our church resets every level, volunteer positions, membership, and financial commitments. Every year, it, it erases them all. And we're asking you for the next four weeks to take that document we gave out to you and to figure out how you're going to serve God through the church and to figure out how you're going to give to mission through the church. And we don't ask you to tell us how much you're going to give. We just ask you to make a conscious effort to do it, to do it up front. And some of you, you, you've been really unwise in the way you've structured your time commitments. And like the frog in the kettle, it's just cooked up. And you're at a place where you don't have time for the church anymore. You don't have a time for the thing that Christ paid for with his blood. And God owns. And God said to Peter, is the only thing that hell cannot defeat. Now, I'm not trying to fill up this room. That's not our problem. (laughs) We don't struggle with getting more people to come to worship. This is not a This is not a secret way to get all of these things done. I know it can look very mercenary. Me saying you need to tithe and you need to come to church on Sunday morning. And you need to serve through the church. It's either mercenary or it's true and I believe it. And it's just the way it is. And I propose to you... That's what I'm doing here this morning. My job is to encourage. That's the job of a pastor. And that word encourage, it comes up all through chapter 21. 2021, it means exhort, it means warn, it means care for, it means teach, it means all of these things. And so I encourage you to reflect on how much the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love the church, both as an institution and as an organism. And love the church. It's God's gift to the world, for the life of the world. It's where God gives us himself. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, please stand with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Paul and the early church and the way they show us the way to true life. Help us in the next four weeks to recommit ourselves to your bride. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.